name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening. Daniel chapter 9, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come to the latter portion of chapter 9 tonight. If you're with us tonight and you are without a Bible, I ask you just to flag one of these guys coming up the aisle right now. You will be totally lost tonight uh, without a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible uh, a gift from the Lord uh, to you this evening. And uh, tonight we pick things up in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 20. We remember that Daniel 9, uh, chapter 9 contains uh, one of the greatest prayers in the Bible and one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. And last week we spent uh, our time uh, looking at the prayer of Daniel and now we turn formally to, uh, to this uh, prophecy this week. And uh, uh, the, uh, um, he begins here in verse uh, 20 with giving us kind of the circumstances Daniel does surrounding this prophecy that is uh, given to him. Now, Daniel says, while I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, as we saw last week, uh, he gave himself uh, very fully to that, uh, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, uh, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, uh, the man Gabriel, this is of course Gabriel the angel, he's an archangel, he's referred to as a man here because that's the form that he takes in all of this. The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, uh, being caused uh, to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening uh, sacrifice. And so uh, Daniel, while he was praying his prayer, we're told here, and remember his prayer was centered upon uh, the future of Jerusalem, the future of Israel, the future of uh, the Jewish people. And Daniel knows, is a student of the scriptures, is a serious um, follower and worshiper of the Lord, he knows he's on the other side of the coming of Messiah. Uh, he knows how much hangs in the balance related to uh, the future, not just of uh, rebuilding walls and rebuilding temples and uh, reestablishing uh, Jerusalem out of the hands of pagans and back into the hands uh, of the Jews. Now, Daniel looks at it and says the greatest thing that God has uh, promised the Jewish people is still yet future. And that is that uh, Messiah to come into the world through the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, uh, and Jacob. And so he is uh, answer, asking the Lord in prayer concerning the future of Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish people, Israel, and we're told in verse 20 and 21 as we read that uh, all of this, uh, these events occurred at the time of the evening offering. So sometime about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and on, that's the time of the evening offering uh, concerning uh, the Jewish people. And at that time, the angel Gabriel uh, came to Daniel in order to answer his uh, prayer. Something about this prayer, uh, the Lord might have been, he was certainly waiting uh, the 70 years for when he was going to return the Jewish people back into uh, the land of Israel from their Babylonian captivity as he had promised through uh, Jeremiah. 
but I don't know how many prayers were being offered to the Lord at this time uh, in that regard, but uh, clearly the Lord heard something that pleased him in Daniel's prayer. The humility of it, the brokenness of it, the confession of sin and guilt, no blame shifting at all related to, uh, to any of it, and uh, the, the petitioning of God for, uh, for uh, spiritual things, for the things that make the Jewish people the most unique in human history. And uh, uh, God hears the prayer that he had been waiting for, and uh, he dispatched Gabriel uh, to come now and bring the answer to uh, Daniel's uh, prayer. Daniel uh, mentioned that Gabriel was the same angel who visited him in his earlier vision, speaking of the vision that uh, Daniel saw in uh, chapter uh, 8. And uh, there's, uh, the, the angel Gabriel is sometimes referred to as the announcing angel. Uh, that when God wants to uh, send one of the angels to make a significant announcement to mankind, uh, he does seem to repeatedly use the angel Gabriel uh, for that. We see it here in our passage. Uh, we see it on into the New Testament concerning uh, the coming of Jesus himself. It was the angel Gabriel who met Zechariah, the priest, uh, who was uh, married to Elizabeth. They were going to become the sons of John the Baptist. And while he was performing his priestly function inside of the holy place within the temple, it is uh, Gabriel that comes and, uh, and announces to him that he is going to have a son who is going to be the promised, biblically promised forerunner of the coming Messiah. And then, of course, it was Gabriel who came to Mary and announced that she was highly favored among women and that she had been chosen by God to uh, bring the Messiah into human history. And so this is kind of the place uh, that, that he has, kind of a chief angel for uh, divine communication. It is interesting, I think, to look in verse 21 and uh, where we're told that uh, Gabriel flew quickly uh, to come to Daniel there in Babylon as he's uh, uttering the prayer. It gives us a little bit of a look into the angelic realm in terms of, of how all of that operates. Uh, do notice as well in verse uh, 21 that uh, he had been sent and uh, so the, uh, the two words there in the New King James is being caused. Uh, God uh, dispatched him in response to, uh, to this prayer. And, uh, and the idea is that uh, God directed Gabriel to go immediately to Daniel at the very beginning of, of Daniel's uh, prayer. And, uh, and, and as he comes and he flies swiftly to him, uh, he doesn't arrive until the end of uh, Daniel's prayer. And so Daniel uh, was praying, Gabriel was sent uh, as well in verse 21 uh, at the time of the evening offering uh, in Jerusalem. Again, as I mentioned, three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, this is very interesting that that uh, Daniel would refer to anything in terms of time after spending 70 years in Babylon to refer to anything uh, by virtue 
of one of the Jewish sacrifices um, and, and making that a reference point. But he doesn't say it's three o'clock in the afternoon, however you say that in Babylon, all those thousands of years ago, or four o'clock in the afternoon. He says, no, all of this happened at the time of the evening sacrifice. And there were no sacrifices, Jewish sacrifices going on in, in Babylon uh, that were considered evening sacrifices. This is wholly the spiritual vocabulary uh, of, of, of the Jews. And, uh, and, and yet this is how he refers to it. And, and I think it reveals the, uh, the memory uh, of those offerings. And here is Daniel. Daniel, you remember, was not a prince. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't one of the apostates. He's one of the, kind of the innocent victims of the sin of these other people that he goes into captivity. And so he has a sincere relationship with God before all of that uh, happens. And uh, the temple means a lot to him. The sacrifices are not going through the motion for him. They're significant to him. And he's one of that remnant of God's people that are always present, no matter how great the apostasy of God's people uh, is. And here he is now, uh, some uh, 70, almost 70 years later. Now he's surely well into his 80s. And when he thinks about something mid-afternoon, he doesn't think of it in Babylonian terms. He thinks of it in terms of his spiritual heritage in Jerusalem. And he's still marking time based upon that spiritual heritage. And I think it's a tremendous encouragement to us as Christian parents, as we raise our children in the things of the Lord. And to realize, certainly today, in the world in which we live, we raise them at 18, we give them luggage and kick them out. Just kidding. But um, when they go on their way, I mean, it can be a fretful thing. Where are they going to go in this whole wide world that is uh, Babylon? And, uh, and to realize that if we'll supply our children, as God instructs us to, with that kind of a heritage, uh, they will continue, by the grace of God, to process life uh, from that heritage. It isn't wasted uh, at all. This beautiful, beautiful, uh, the spiritual memories uh, the, that, that Daniel reveals here, uh, even this late in his life. Gabriel himself, he introduces the, the vision in verses 22 and uh, in 23. And he said, and uh, he informed me, uh, Daniel says, and he talked with me, Gabriel the angel did, and said, oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out uh, for me to come to you, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand uh, the vision. And so he tells him, you are wondering and praying and asking and concerned about the future of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. I have come to answer that prayer. And boy, God's going to give him a revelation. <laughs> a lot more than he was asking for uh, in, in this, uh, this vision. And so here is 
uh, Daniel. He has believed the old prophecies. He has believed the previous prophecies of Jeremiah. So God gives him new prophecies. And why would God give us uh, any further revelation uh, if his previous revelation hasn't been taken serious by us or changed our lives or impacted us? But Daniel models for us how to handle these things. And so having taken the one seriously, God says, I will entrust uh, even greater uh, to him. And so uh, comes this prophecy to reassure Daniel that uh, God is absolutely committed to uh, all of his plans for the nation of Israel, their ultimate restoration to the land, uh, but then all uh, so much more that, that lay beh- uh, beyond it, and again, especially in the coming uh, of our Savior and of, of, of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. He, uh, he, he tells us, and it gets some insight into the angelic realm, into the spiritual realm. Uh, I'm always curious about any kind of insights we get to this in the Bible. Uh, Gabriel indicates that he was sent to come at the start of uh, Daniel's prayer. And, uh, and there in verse 23, the pronoun uh, I is emphatic in the Hebrew, and it stresses the idea that uh, once Daniel began to pray, that the Lord picked out Gabriel personally among the angelic beings and uh, to relay the message uh, to, uh, to Daniel. Uh, somebody has uh, uh, given all of this uh, some thought, and I think in a kind of a valuable way, uh, at least in terms of a little bit of curiosity on things. Uh, somebody's observed that to pray the prayer that Daniel prayed that constitutes the first half of, of Daniel chapter 9, to pray it in Hebrew uh, takes about three minutes. That's assuming you know Hebrew. Uh, otherwise, it takes a lifetime. Uh, uh, it'd take me a long time to pray that in Hebrew. I'd have to learn the language for enough of my problems. But Daniel, he prayed. It takes about three minutes uh, to do that. And uh, so the indication is, is if uh, Gabriel was dispatched at the moment he began the prayer and he arrives at the end of the prayer, that heaven is about uh, three minutes away uh, as the angel flies. Uh, we're going to make a new saying up, aren't we? We'll dump the old crow on that. And, uh, but before we invest too heavily in that, it is entirely possible uh, that Gabriel got there in two seconds and uh, spent the other two minutes and 58 seconds waiting uh, for Daniel to, uh, to uh, come to the end uh, of his prayer. It is uh, beautiful there in verse 23, and it won't be the last time, but we'll see it in the book of Daniel, uh, where uh, Gabriel declares to Daniel concerning how Daniel is esteemed in heaven when he says, you are greatly beloved. How wonderful it is to uh, think about that and how much it must have meant to uh, Daniel to uh, hear that. Uh, from uh, Gabriel as he brought that message of how he is esteemed in heaven. And it's a wonderful thing. You, uh, in, we look at it, and uh, for Daniel to hear that in the way that he did, um, like a, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty big uh, wow moment. 
And, and it isn't that uh, you are greatly beloved as a prophet, but uh, you are greatly beloved. And I think that any man or woman that serves the Lord, um, however greatly the Lord might use them, they don't want to be loved supremely for whatever gift or calling has been given to them by God. They want to be loved for who they are, from which that calling flows. And here's this tremendous revelation of the love of God to Daniel. And then we turn, and I say all of that to just simply, so we don't lose our awe as we turn to the New Testament and read over and over and over and over again of the greatness of God's love for us. And the symbols of that are before us here. And the, the symbols of Jesus' body and blood concerning Calvary. I, like uh, just a story, um, the first time I ever met uh, Gail Irwin, and uh, I had no idea he was going to become a very good friend. And he, uh, it was at Mount Hermon uh, uh, Pastors Conference. I was very, very new in the Lord, but I was already a deacon in the church, and so they allowed everyone that were elders and deacons and pastors to go to the conference if they wanted to. And so Gail Irwin comes out. I knew nothing about him. Virtually the entire Calvary movement knew nothing about him at that point in time. And as he's coming on the stage and he's got his wireless mic on and, uh, and he cried, the first words that came out of his mouth is, I hope everyone here knows that God loves them. And I have to tell you, that hit me like a ton of bricks when I heard that. Uh, I, f I continued to follow his uh, initial sermon. He taught to that, uh, that week. And, um, but it really sent me back because the, the environment that I was raised in, nobody talked about love very much. And we, as a family, we just weren't good at it. We just weren't, we just weren't good at that. And then somehow there was this breakthrough. And maybe God will give you that kind of a breakthrough tonight as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Just this breakthrough of the fact that God loved me. And, uh, and, and the wonder of that. And it really set me back. And it really got me going. I understood love and was growing into it because Karen and I, solely because of Karen, and uh, because of our marriage and, and how loving and other-centered uh, she was and is. But there was that great breakthrough concerning uh, the love of God. And what a, a beautiful thing here. I, I almost wish I could have had the, some kind of been inside of Daniel to experience what all of this must have meant. And then he begins the vision formally in verse 24. And here's uh, the message, uh, the vision that's being given to Daniel. Uh, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, 
And then this is worth underlining right here. Until Messiah the Prince, uh, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, uh, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation, uh, which is determined, uh, is poured out on the desolate, speaking of Jesus' second uh, coming, but I'm getting ahead of myself, way ahead of myself um, in terms uh, of that. So here Gabriel comes to Daniel to, you notice in verse 24, to declare to him the future of the nation of Israel and uh, Jerusalem. Because he speaks to Daniel, you notice, uh, this, has to, this vision has to do with your people, talking about the Jews, and your holy city, speaking of, of uh, Jerusalem. In that verse uh, 24, uh, da- Gabriel de- declares that all of this is determined. In other words, the vision that he gives to Daniel here, uh, he is uh, affirming uh, even extraordinarily uh, that all of it is going uh, to come to pass. God has determined uh, that it will. You notice in the latter part of of verse 24 that the angel Gabriel uh, declared that righteousness would one day uh, mark the nation of Israel and and indeed mark the entire world. And that uh, it will occur at the end of something called uh, 70 weeks. Now, you've got to clear something up related to this passage to really have any hope of, of understanding it. That word weeks, uh, that is, it, it's, it's like if, if I was going to do a new translation of the Bible, it would be awful, by the way, so don't be on the edge of your seat. Um, but if I was going to make one change, it would be to change that word weeks Uh, the translation of the Hebrew word there into the English word and the use of the word uh, weeks because it automatically makes us think in terms of weeks as a a block of time. The Hebrew word uh, that is used there for weeks is the word shabua and it literally means sevens and it's not referring uh, to weeks at all. It's referring uh, to uh, sevens. And the use of the word weeks, it just confuses the entire uh, issue. And so when you read through this, 77s are determined, uh, verse 24, for your people and for uh, your holy city. And then all the way through, just substitute out weeks and put sevens in there. And we're about a third of the way on our way from understanding what what it is that's happening uh, here. Now, we don't know what the block of time is that's being referred to in the sevens. 
because the word can refer to any uh, block of time. Uh, when the word is used in the Bible, uh, the context always determines whether it is seven days or seven weeks or seven years. The word itself is, uh, is not intended to give any indication of whether it's talking about days or weeks or, or years. The context establishes that. Now, notice in uh, verse 24, the latter half of it, uh, what is going to be uh, the righteous condition uh, of the Jewish people of Jerusalem and, and really with them the whole uh, world, uh, what's going to come to pass at the end of these uh, 77s. You notice that at the end of the 77s, there will be the finishing of transgression. Transgression speaks of deliberate disobedience to God's commandments. At the end of the 77s, all of that is going to cease. Uh, all rebellion will cease. Clearly, uh, neither of those things has happened yet in human history. Uh, there will be the, uh, a, an end of all sins. Clearly, that hasn't happened yet in human history. Uh, at the end of the 77s, there'll be the making of reconciliation for iniquity. Iniquity talks about the crookedness of mankind. It talks about uh, the bentness of the human nature. Clearly, uh, that hasn't been brought to an end yet in human history. And... Uh, and then further, to bring in everlasting righteousness, uh, that is at the end of the 77s, uh, there will be the establishment of the righteous standard of God's kingdom as the supreme standard of righteousness uh, in the world. That hasn't yet happened in human history. Further, to seal up vision and prophecy uh, at the end of the 77s, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament visions and prophecies will uh, occur. And then finally, to anoint the most holy. Uh, talking about the holy of holies in a rebuilt temple, uh, a temple that will be built during the thousand-year reign of Christ, the kingdom age of Christ, that temple that we studied when we were in, uh, in the book of, of Ezekiel and studying that in chapters 40 to 44. That temple will be anointed and it will be consecrated in uh, Jerusalem. As you don't see a temple there yet. All of these things are going to have a future fulfillment because clearly the fulfillment, by virtue of those things not being present yet in human history, the fulfillment of the 77s has not yet uh, occurred. Now, notice that Gabriel's specific revelation concerning the coming Messiah there in verse 25, where the Messiah is referred to as Messiah the Prince. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The idea is a total of sixty-nine sevens. And the street shall be built again and the wall you see those two words the wall that's worth circling in your Bible and all of this is going to occur even in troublesome uh, times and here's what Gabriel is communicating to Daniel specifically Daniel one day there's going to be a decree that's going to be given to restore and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem uh, and the city of Jerusalem at the time that Gabriel is saying this to Daniel is in a comparative ruin. It has been destroyed by uh, Babylon. 
and that the rebuilding of this city would also include uh, the rebuilding of the street. And then, as I mentioned, very significantly, as Gabriel brings forth, uh, it will also include the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. And the Hebrew word that is used there for the wall is, uh, speaks to an outer defense of a city. It could also be translated uh, moat. But if you ever go to Israel and you see the various castles in Caesarea and all, they don't have moats. Water's a little scarce. In Florida, you have moats. Uh, in the Middle East, you have walls as an outer defense. And, uh, and, uh, and they are, usually there's an outer defense of a wall, and then you've got, uh, as is the case at Caesarea, for those of you who have been to Israel, uh, then the dry moat before you hit another uh, series of walls within the city. And so uh, Daniel, uh, Gabriel rev reveals to Daniel that this rebuilding of the city, its town square, the wall, its outer defense, uh, would not be easy that it's going to be uh, done in troublesome times. There's going to be fierce opposition uh, against these things being accomplished. And then, and then notice further that Gabriel revealed that from the day that uh, that command that is given to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, including its wall, its outer defense, until the coming of Messiah the Prince to Israel, that it will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, again, uh, a total of 69 sevens. And the 69 sevens that are spoken of in verse 20, uh, 25 are considered uh, by virtually all scholars to refer to years. And the reason that they do that, there's more than one reason, but the, the single great reason is because years is uh, the context uh, of the chapter. At the time this prophecy was given to Daniel, he is contemplating the prophecy of Jeremiah who prophesied that the Jews would be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So he has got uh, years on the brain in terms of where his mind is, Gabriel comes in and he begins to talk about 77s and, and he doesn't have to explain that it's years uh, to Daniel. Daniel is already there. And when we understand that the 69 sevens refer to uh, years, then we have uh, this block of years that totals 483 years. And if you then multiply those 483 years times 360, the number of days within a calendar year, not for us. Our calendar year is 365 days a year. And then we correct it every once in a while in February. But this prophecy has been given to Daniel during the period of the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire uh, had a 360-day uh, year calendar. And so you take the 483 years times the 360 of the Babylonian uh, a calendar and you end up with 173,880 days. And uh, wondrously, really, uh, then when uh, the, the Lord is revealing to Daniel 
that from the day a decree is given to rebuild and to restore Jerusalem uh, and a decree that includes the rebuilding of its outer defenses, the wall, then you can pull out a calendar and start marking days and 173,880 uh, days from uh, the day that that uh, decree is given. Uh, Messiah the Prince will be revealed to Israel. And so the critical question becomes, where in the Old Testament did a king make a decree to the Jewish people to go forth and to restore and build Jerusalem, including its street and including its outer defenses? Because this prophecy means nothing if we do not have the date from which to measure it uh, with some authority. And if we don't have it with the highest authority of all, and that is uh, somewhere within, uh, within Scripture. And so uh, God has to supply that to us. And the answer is found in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah in chapter 2. Whereas you would read there in the first uh, eight verses, uh, another time on your own, there is a king by the name of Artaxerxes. And he gives a decree to Nehemiah to not only restore and rebuild Jerusalem, but to also rebuild its wall. Allow me to read a couple of verses from Nehemiah chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the uh, 20th year of King Artaxerxes, uh, and then you go down a little bit further, and Nehemiah said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant uh, has found favor in your eyes, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then you go down a little bit further, uh, and uh, uh, he re requests further a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertain to the temple uh, and for the city wall uh, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And so the, the street uh, of Jerusalem uh, was ordered to be rebuilt on that date by King Artaxerxes and the wall. Uh, significantly, not the temple. No mention of the temple uh, at all being uh, rebuilt. And then uh, further, as, as Gabriel declares to us, that all of this rebuilding is going to occur in uh, troublesome times. And for a glimpse at how troublesome and how hard it was to rebuild that wall and the streets of Jerusalem, uh, those of you who are familiar with the book of Nehemiah, you will recognize uh, how difficult a project uh, that was and all of the opposition that they encountered in endeavoring uh, to accomplish this decree of Artaxerxes and uh, all of it described in detail in Nehemiah. Uh, King Artaxerxes, and uh, there will be a test after all of this, by the way. Uh, King Artaxerxes, uh, he started his reign in 445 B.C. And so his 20th, uh, I'm sorry, 465 B.C., so his 20th year was 445 B.C. 
Uh, Nehemiah, as we're told there in chapter 2, that uh, it it says that uh, it refers there to this decree being given in the month of Nisan. And, uh, And it doesn't give us a day. But whenever a month is given to us in a particular year, referring to some kind of Jewish dating, uh, if the day isn't uh, mentioned, it's always referring to the first day uh, of the month. And so uh, the day that the decree was made by King Artaxerxes was the first day of Nisan in 445 BC, which uh, we can translate into our calendar as March 14th, 445 BC. And now, uh, knowing that, you add your 173,880 days to the March 14th, 445 BC, taking into account leap years and then the changes from BC to AD and all of these other things, and it all comes to April 6, 32 AD. The very day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. On the Sunday, prior to his crucifixion, uh, later that, that same week, followed by his, his burial and his resurrection. And on Palm Sunday, uh, uh, that Sunday prior to his crucifixion, uh, the day when Jesus formally presented himself to the nation uh, of Israel, to the Jewish people, you might remember, as their Messiah. And here you have in the book of Daniel, one of the most astonishing prophecies in the entire Bible, where God gave the nation of Israel and the Jewish people the very day of the coming of their Messiah. And it is for that reason, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on that part, Palm uh, Sunday that he began to weep over the city. And as he wept over the city, he cried out, if you had only known even you, especially this, your day. And he was referring to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. And yet, despite God giving them the very day of the coming of their Messiah, as you might remember uh, on his triumphal entry, overall, the Jewish people were completely ignorant of it. Uh, They did not know the day of their uh, visitation. And that's why Jesus uh, said, if you had known, even you, especially on this your day, the things that make for your peace. Remember how it was when Jesus, uh, during the course of his three and a half years of his public ministry, I mean the miracles that he did, uh, the teaching uh, that he did, and he is cleansing lepers, he is healing people of every kind of disease or deformity that there might be, and, and he is raising people from the dead. And there was that repeated attempt by people to make him king as a result of what they were seeing. Imagine going to see Jesus teach face to face. You have heard about him. You travel from from some distant part of Israel to come and hear him teach. He's a miracle worker. And then all of a sudden, he raises someone from the dead. 
He cleanses a leper. Uh, he touches somebody in, in their illness. And you see it there with, with your own eyes. And you would immediately want to make him king. You would immediately want to, uh, you immediately recognize him to be the Messiah and want to, uh, to make him publicly king and Messiah in that very moment. And though Jesus was opposed very significantly by the Jewish religious leaders of his time, the common people heard him gladly and the common people uh, loved him. And each time the common people would attempt to take Jesus by force and make him king, he, would, he refused to allow it to happen. And he refused to allow it to happen with what words? My time has not yet come. He was waiting for a particular time. He was waiting for a particular day to be formally presented to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people as their Messiah in fulfillment of Daniel uh, chapter uh, 9. And, and yet on this day, the day of, of his triumphal entry, on Palm Sunday, now he allows the people to sing to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and to acknowledge him as the Messiah because this, his day had finally come. One of the things that's interesting about this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is that it is time sensitive. It, 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 it cannot be fulfilled today. The opportunity to fulfill that prophecy is 2,000 years ago. Anyone who would come on the scene and declare, I am the Jewish Messiah and claim to be the promised Messiah uh, of, the ba uh, of the Bible, no one would ever be able, no student of the Bible would ever be able to take them seriously because it would be impossible for him to fulfill this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 because they would be 2,000 years too late for doing so. And all of this speaks to just one more piece in the puzzle in terms of the prophetic picture that was laid out in the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah who was to come. And that is, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then nobody's the Messiah. Because he is the only one in human history who not only fulfilled collectively all of the 300 prophecies that he fulfilled in his first coming, but he is the only one who fulfilled this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And you notice in verse 26 that Gabriel went on to uh, declare to Daniel that following this triumphal entry of Messiah, that Messiah would not establish his uh, physical kingdom uh, on the earth at that time, but instead he would be cut off, that is, he would be killed. And after the 62 uh, sevens, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. It, it, it was inconceivable, uh, and, and is yet today, but it was inconceivable in the ancient world, in the mind of a Jew, that when the Messiah came, that he would 
ever be cut off, that he would ever die. The idea is that he would be a conquering king, he would come immediately into the world and establish his kingdom. And, and failing to read the Old Testament scriptures that revealed that the Messiah would uh, come first as a suffering savior and then come as a conquering king. And yet here, Jesus dying on the cross at the hands of both Jews and Romans 2,000 years ago, far from it being a reason for not believing in Jesus as the Messiah, it is required to believe in Jesus as the Messiah in order to fulfill verse 26 of Daniel chapter uh, uh, 9, that he would not establish his eternal kingdom uh, at the time of his being unveiled to the Jewish people. And even as Jesus, of course, was crucified four days after his triumphal entry and, uh, and uh, 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 astonishingly, even the religious Jews uh, uh, playing a part in, in all of that. And Gabriel further declared that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. In other words, this Messiah is going to die, but he will not die for any fault in himself. I find no fault in this man. Pilate said over and over and over again. But that he would die uh, for others. Not his own sins, but for our sins. And again, here it is in Daniel, made so clear in Isaiah chapter 53. And surely he that is the Messiah has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised, not for his own iniquities, but for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, including all of us in this room tonight. For he has, was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And here you have Daniel chapter 9. It is a perfect description of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In, uh, and here it is uh, being uh, given uh, so uh, many years before it happened at the time of, of, uh, 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 of the, the event, given in the time uh, of, of Daniel, through this, this Gabriel, this angelic messenger God gave the very day of his triumphant entry. And what would follow it, shockingly again, uh, that he would die following that, that revealing, that unveiling. I mean, it just, it breaks your mind. To, if, you, if you would read it as a Jew prior to it happening, you would just say, There's, there is no aligning of any set of circumstances that would result in this. We would never allow it to happen to our Messiah. And yet, it happened exactly as Gabriel said that it would. And then you notice that in the second half of verse 26, that Gabriel went on to describe the destruction of the city of Jerusalem following uh, the death uh, of 
of uh, Jesus. And it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood and uh, uh, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And uh, all of this is exactly as happened in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus came in to put down a widespread Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire. And he came in with his Roman legions and he conquered the city of uh, Jerusalem in order to crush it. And uh, the city was destroyed. And uh, here as it's mentioned, uh, even in this prophecy, the destruction of the temple was so thorough that not a single stone was left one upon another by the time the uh, Roman military uh, got uh, done uh, uh, with that. And, and here is the destruction that is, is described uh, in, and as Jesus described in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 as well. And then when it talks about the people of the prince uh, who is to come, uh, there in, in verse 26, it, refer, it refers to the Romans uh, under whom Jesus w- was crucified. They'll destroy the city. They'll also destroy the sanctuary, as I've said. And the end of it will be a, f- with a flood. In other words, it will result in a dispersion of the Jews. And the Jews were taken uh, captive as slaves by uh, massive numbers. And others of them were taken to be fed to animals in the gladiatorial games. And many of them fled into surrounding uh, nations uh, as well. And you can read the Jewish historian Josephus for probably the greatest details concerning all of that, even as, uh, as Gabriel prophesied would uh, come uh, to pass. And then notice here, uh, then. And uh, so here you now have this word then, uh, which is intended to separate verse 27. Uh, It's still a part of the prophecy, but to separate it from the 69 sevens. And then he, whoever this he is, shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven. But in the middle of the seven, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of uh, a desolation uh, uh, on the wing of abomination shall uh, be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined uh, is poured out on the desolate and, uh, and, and here you have this final seven this final uh, period of seven years that are prophesied uh, of and we know it to refer to the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, this is, and it's important to notice that the, the seven-year tribulation period has nothing to do with the church. It has everything to do with the Jewish people. It, 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 this is for, it determined for your people and your city. This is all about God's dealing with the Jewish people and bringing them uh, uh, to him. And uh, that's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a Jewish thing in the Old Testament. And uh, so it's separated from the uh, other 69 sevens in our text, even as it's been separated in, in time. 
and now the gap between uh, the fulfillment of of the first half of this prophecy there in verses 24 uh, through 26 uh, to a future fulfillment of verse 27. That gap is now 2,000 years in what is called uh, the church age. And this vision that God uh, gives to Daniel, it has nothing to do with uh, the church. It has nothing to do with supplying Daniel with the details of the church age because this vision is plainly addressed to his dealings with, with Israel. The he that is referred to here is the Antichrist. And we know from other passages in the Bible uh, that he is going to make a covenant with many. He'll come into power. He will deceive the entire world. And um, uh, uh, even uh, offering to uh, erase all college debt. And I mean, whatever people need to hear, he is, he is going to uh, do that. He's going to balance the budget. He'll do everything for... Uh, you think you've seen a politician. You haven't seen a politician. You won't see him as a Christian. But this guy's going to come on like gangbusters. But he's going to come into power. He's going to deceive the entire world. And then he's even going to make a covenant with the Jews to rebuild uh, their temple. And after he allows them to rebuild their temple, at the three and a half year mark of that seven year tribulation, he will march straight into the holy of holies of that temple. He will sit down uh, in in that room that, that represents the very presence of God. He will declare himself to be God and demand to be worshiped by God. It's no, Jesus referred to it as the, de- the uh, the, the desolation, um, the, uh, oh, what is the, help me out with it. Yeah, the abomination that causes desolation. And, uh, and, and then he says, run for your life as a Jew once you, you see that. So referred to as the, the abomination of, of, of uh, desolation. And in the end, this uh, desolator, this antichrist at the end of verse 27 will be destroyed uh, by God um, and, uh, and for until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And, and uh, he is going to be destroyed by God at Jesus' second coming. We know from Revelation chapter 19, uh, there is the, it, it is second coming, the battle of Armageddon, the antichrist is captured, uh, the, the false prophet is is captured and they are cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and then at the end of this seven-year tribulation all of this that the antichrist has been involved in you'll have the second coming of christ the establishing of the kingdom age and then the things uh, prophesied of in verse 24 there that haven't yet come to pass those things will mark the entire world righteousness will characterize the world rebellion will cease there will be an end of sin reconciliation will be made for sin everlasting righteousness will be brought in uh, that is establishing uh, God's kingdom being established, all of the Old Testament visions and prophecies being fulfilled, and then the Holy of Holies, the temple uh, will be anointed and consecrated there uh, in Jerusalem. And because this passage so perfectly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, uh, some Jewish rabbis 
who don't want people uh, to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they'll attempt to date this prophecy uh, to uh, King Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem there in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And the problem with this sleight of hand, and uh, they know what they're doing. They know they're being deceitful with the Scriptures. The problem with that is that that decree in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, was a decree to rebuild the temple, not to rebuild the city and the wall, uh, as is specifically mentioned here, and can only be dated from Nehemiah's prophecy. And, uh, and so here we finish one of the most amazing prophecies in the Old uh, Testament to be found. If Jesus is not the Messiah, no one is the Messiah. But look at how easy he makes it for, if you're not a Christian, for you to recognize him as the Messiah based upon the witness of the prophetic scriptures in the Old Testament. Uh, only the, the person for whom all of these 300 prophecies of the Old Testament were written about could come into human history and fulfill them. And thus he's worthy of you making him uh, your Messiah and your Savior tonight. And then for us as Christians, the, to look at it and, and to realize what a firm foundation God has supplied to us against every spiritual warfare to make us doubt in our faith or doubt what we believe. He's given us, as Peter put it, the more sure word of prophecy. Only uh, God could paint the prophetic picture that he did of Jesus in the Old Testament and only the true Messiah could fulfill it. And again, if anyone were to come on the scene to claim to be the Messiah today, they would be disqualified solely on the basis, if, if for no other reason, than on the basis of Daniel chapter 9. Beautiful prophecy. Let's ask the worship team to come forward and uh, the men to come forward and we will partake of communion tonight in... Um, and the, the influence of this, this passage.